Hello and welcome to the Brand Explorer podcast. I'm your host, Dirk Belling, coming to you from Munich. These interviews explore the trails and passes people have taken to build successful brands in the cycling community. Listen to their lessons from their own personal experience. Enjoy the ride. Tim Maloney came with significant marketing experience from Saatchi and Saatchi and Young and Rubicam into the bike industry over 30 years ago. Growing up in New Jersey, his curiosity for the road cycling scene in Europe motivated him to learn French and Italian. He started the Diamondback racing team, working for Diamondback as international sales and marketing director in the 90s, when fax machines were top-notch. He continued his path working for specialized Alpine Stars, North Wave, Nike Cycling, Colnago, and Pinarello, before he changed sides, pioneering online cycling journalism as one of the founders of CyclingNews.com. Since 2008, he is working as a consultant for Kenyan Bicycles. We talk about how crazy it was to build a global brand before internet, what structure and discipline have to do with successful marketing, how Italian marketing is so different than the rest, and what he and Chris Froome have alike. Oh, and Tim has so many stories to share, as you can guess, that we plan a second episode about starting cycling news and the change to e-commerce. Enjoy the ride. Hey, Tim, good morning. Good morning, Dirk Belling. Hey, thanks for, for coming along um, to this first uh, episode of The Brand Explorer. I'm really excited to spend some time with you catching up, especially in these crazy Corona times. How are you? I'm good, and I'm honored to be uh, on your podcast. Uh, it sounds like an exciting um, um, endeavor, and uh, yeah, I'm good. Uh, you know, it's every like everybody. I'm sick and tired of you know being under the restrictions of coronavirus. But you know, I, yes. on the other hand, I have some optimism that things are getting better. So. And, you know, as someone in the bike industry, I guess I have to be pretty positive because the coronavirus has turned out to be an unexpected boon for cycling. Uh, and it's right. pretty yes. amazing. Hey, before we uh, go into that uh, topic, um, are you in the room with the window? I am. So when you look out at the window, what, what do you see? Uh, I see a um, little, like a prime. I live next door to a primary school, and it's uh, um, kind of a late winter day here in Italy, slightly overcast. It's been quite warm for the last week with some pretty, pretty decent weather for the time of the year. So that's what I see. I see an empty Great. schoolyard because the kids come out to, for uh, recess in about an hour and then I'll hear all the happy young voices <laughs> that'll remind me of when I was a little kid and going to school you know it was always great to get out for recess after being cool yeah, you, know, you know it's the same thing about riding your bike you know I, I try to ride every day around noontime for an hour or more depending on the weather and my work schedule so that's that's my recess that's a nice one. So you said, yeah, um, Corona is, is uh, hard on us. At the same time, uh, the bike industry has to feel pretty lucky. It's almost like a reward for all those many years of hard working that now um, uh, everybody has to stay home and, and sees how much you can do with the bike. Yeah, and I think the challenge now for the industry is to – chart a course forward to uh, manage the situation. I mean, there are shortages uh, and eventually the supply chain will stabilize. And, you know, they say a rising tide floats all boats. And so eventually the tide will go out and there will be some contraction in the market. But the, the challenge for the industry is to 
I think maintain uh, and you know the maintain the interest in cycling, uh, especially among the new um, participants. Uh, my cousin, who's in her mid sixties, she's retired nurse lives in California and she sent me an email the other day and said, Oh, well, I've been getting into uh biking during the um pandemic and I've really enjoyed riding on the trails right. my bike. And I was like, you know, there's a great example. So how do we keep that person interested? And it's a big, big challenge because frankly the bicycle industry has not really risen much to the challenge. Um of that kind of marketing. And, and so for how long has she not been riding her bike? Well, she's not, I mean, she's a bike, she's not a cyclist. So I think this is something pretty new. I actually haven't okay. replied to her email yet okay. <laughs> to ask her. Um, so I will eventually, but she's, I think she just picked it up because it was a way to get out and have some mobility and, you know, exercise. I think one of the things about cycling is that, it really, you know, engenders a sense of freedom and mobility. I know that when I was a kid and started riding uh, in my early teens, uh, it was really great to be able to go on what we called a bike hike and go ride for three or four hours around the town or go out in the countryside. And, um, and you know, that, that sense of freedom is something that stays with you. Every time you swing your leg over a top tube, you know that you're going to go on a uh, a self-propelled journey, you know? Yeah. Yes. So I think it's a big, a big challenge though, for the industry to capture that, um, new, to capture those, you know, the, 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 um, let's say the, the imagination of those new users and keep them involved with cycling. Yeah. Speaking about kids and your time, uh, going out for these hike bikes, where, where was that? Can you can you share uh, some yeah, of where? I grew up at the, what they call the Jersey Shore, which is Bruce Springsteen territory. He he even played at my high school, um, wow. in a band called Steel Mill, and we called Bruce Springsteen uh, a greaser because he had kind of long greasy hair and a black leather jacket and you know like a motorcycle jacket. But I grew up in the Jersey right. Shore area, about an hour from New York City, and uh, the you know um, there. There's um, there was a lot of rural countryside, you know, not far. So we used to go ride our bikes out in the countryside and ride around town and, you know, that kind of stuff. So that's where I grew up. And I lived there for until I moved out to the West Coast to go to university. And so, so what uh, did bring you all the way from New Jersey to Italy? Can <laughs> yeah. you, can you? I like spaghetti. Take us on a, on a trip, how, how that all came together. <laughs> well, in the in the early '90s, I was hired to. Um, I basically came into the bike industry. I was hired to run the international sales and marketing for the Diamondback brand of bicycles, and okay. uh, the company, which had been company, was run out of Hong Kong. It had, they the Hong Kong company had bought the um, the, the California based uh, company that was the home of Diamondback a company called WSI or Western States Imports that some listeners may recall. And they bought the Diamondback brand and they wanted to expand. It was China Bicycle that owned it. So they were a huge manufacturer and they wanted to ex explore how to grow their own brand and invest money. And in so they somehow through a, through a gentleman who's, uh, passed away a few years ago. He was a he was a publisher of um, trade bicycle trade magazines and also kind of a mm, informal executive recruiter, a gentleman named Bill Fields, who I had gotten to know, and very nice older gentleman. And he um, introduced me and to to the people at uh, Diamondback. And um, lo and behold, they hired me and moved me from San Francisco. My, me and my wife. And our two cats from San Francisco to France, and I uh, started the marketing office there and started doing the um, marketing and sales, which were integrated for Diamondback worldwide. And I think that's where we met originally, if I'm not mistaken, yes. at a Diamondback 
press camp in southern France. Yes, that's what I remember as well. My friend. (laughs) Yes. So this was this was in the early nineties. Yeah. And whereabout was that exactly your your base in France? Well, it was based near Tours. Originally, it was supposed to be near Paris, but they had a change of route at the last minute, unfortunately. But yeah, and uh, it was an interesting job. I traveled a lot. I traveled all over the world. We had distributor. I mean, there had been a big. there was a, a guy before me who was actually a pretty experienced international bicycle salesman, and he had opened a lot of distributors all over the world. And so the right. the, the distribution channel was, you know, pretty solid. And in those days, there was the huge mountain bike boom. And Diamondback actually was probably the number two or three brand worldwide because they made a lot of bikes at a very good value for money price point and so you could buy a good american branded mountain bike from diamondback for a reasonable price um and uh, i have to laugh to this day because when i used to travel i'm walking around london or paris or or wherever munich your neck of the woods, I would be walking along and I'd look over and see an old mountain bike, let's say chained to a fence or something. And it would be a diamondback Topanga with the purple paint job. <laughs> so, you yeah. know, it was, it was actually a pretty dynamic job. It wasn't a startup. There was a lot of activity. And I think when I came in, we were selling over 300,000 units a year internationally. And they were also selling, you know, I think, uh, in the U.S., f- about four hundred thousand. So it was a, wow. you know, they they were a big competitor with Trek and uh, Specialized, but Diamondbacks yes. did little, very little marketing, uh, especially okay. outside the United States. So my my job was to come in and put together an international uh, marketing program listen to what the customers the distributors wanted and come up with some solutions and and that's i guess what i ended up doing you spoke about a very dynamic uh, time can you can you give us some insights on what dynamic marketing in the 90s looked like <laughs> well first of all there was no internet so that was a big deal right. secondly the technology you know was pretty um rudimentary i mean remember in those days most advertising was created um on a flat board with um you know press type and photography and it was sent to the magazines as a board it wasn't sent electronically and so if you had 25 distributors and there's an ad you were probably dealing with 25 different magazine specs. So because the U.S. office wasn't capable of doing anything like that, they couldn't create – because it was a small outfit in in Camarillo, California for Diamondback in the U.S. They couldn't create all those ads. So a lot of the distributors either did their own advertising or didn't do any advertising. And I had been working in the ad agency business for many years. And so, I mean, I've been a cyclist since I've been a kid, but, you know, um, I had not worked in the bike industry previously. And so what we did was we figured out a way to do these ads uh, electronically. And in those days, there was a medium where it was a large um, cart where you could get a, a reader, a proprietary reader that would read the cart. So what we would do is that we um, bought cart readers for all of the distributors who could handle it. And then we loaded the ads on carts in California where they were made. And then we sent them all out. And then they had those ads and the and the and the, the distributors could then change uh, you know the information about that, but they would have the same ad. So it was really kind of a new frontier in those days. Um, and then, you know, above all, there was no plan. So there was no right. consensus on what the creative would be like, et cetera, et cetera. So we created a branding program that inf- reinforced the Diamondback 
brand identity as an American brand because you know what the hell is a diamondback anyway it's a name for a snake you know diamondback right. originally was started by um a gentleman named Mitch Weiner who is the founder of um what WSI and diamondback snake was the snake that would kill the mongoose the mongoose and in those days there were the BMX wars cuz BMX was huge and and Actually, Mongoose, which was started by uh, Skip Hess, the legendary Skip Hess of Schwinn yes. and Giant and God, you know, and, you know, Mongoose and his dad. That was a huge BMX brand. John Tomac wrote a Mongoose, right? Right. So um, so then they created Diamondback as the Mongoose killer, you know, blah, blah, blah. This is where the origin of the brand oh. but, you know, you see, I didn't know that. So basically mm -hmm. what you're saying is that the – The brand was uh, uh, started to to take what happens in the animal world into the real world. Yeah, in the um, '80s bike boom, you know, the last half of the '80s, there was a lot of money made by Southern California entrepreneurs who made bikes, BMX bikes specifically, and then later right. mountain bikes, and took those bikes and went to Asia to source them. And they got those bikes and <clears throat> brought them back and sold containers upon containers upon containers. And there was a huge demand in those days. Remember the movie E.T. and the kid with the right. Kuahar yes. Mountain yes. BMX bike, blah, blah, blah. And I personally, I wasn't you know involved with any of that. I was just selling whatever crap you know we had to sell in the ad agency. Um, and I didn't, wasn't really a big bike rider in those days. I you know, put my bike. Aside, I still occasionally rode it, but this whole thing was. Well, what happening. kind of bike were you riding? Oh, I had a, a Italian road bike that I had gotten from a friend of mine. So it was called a Marnotti, a funny oh, little, nice. a totally obscure brand. But um, you know, the, I would ride it after work and on the weekends just to kind of blow off steam because you know I was working sixty-hour weeks in New York and <laughs> I, I needed it. But anyway, going back to this whole BMX mountain bike thing. So the BMX business was booming. <clears throat> These guys were making a lot of money, but then <clears throat> it started to fall off. And, and then, you know, we got to the mid eighties and the mountain bike boom started in the late eighties. Really, it, it, you know, it started earlier in the mid eighties, but it really picked up steam towards right. 1988, 1990. And as it started to spread out, internationally you know mountain bike mike senior was extremely aggressive with specialized at opening international distribution yeah and you know so i kind of jumped into the middle of all that and it was a really pretty cool adventure to be um you know involved with that because involved with, it, yeah. was, it was it was super super dynamic right you know it was it was not it was not the more but i remember going For the first time to my inter the first international bicycle show in Cologne, Germany in 1991 oh, yeah. uh, and at If the my... Cologne Mesa. And you remember it. I mean, that was a huge show. And going to the Diamondback booth, and I didn't really know the, the team then or this or that. And the booth was just jammed. I'm like, wow, what the heck is going on here? You know? And and so it was pretty interesting, you know, situation. Yeah, everybody was crazy about the parts from the U.S. Yeah, purple big, ring lay ring lay three D purple. Remember that? Yes, <laughs> I am not so a mountain speaking bike. Speaking about BMX huh? um, and and dynamic and and American image in California, yeah. there was one guy um, who really made a big impact into Diamond Band. Back brand, right? Um, Cully. Did, um, did you yeah, hire? You know, well, uh, first of all, I would say one guy who made a big impact in the uh, Diamondback brand was Brad Hughes, who um, worked for Schwinn. Some people in the industry will know him. Brad lives in Taiwan today as a consulting firm. He, he remarried to a Taiwanese woman. And Brad was really good with product, and he was the guy that started – Together, he and I basically came up with the idea of DBR. I mean, Brad had already done the bikes. 
DBR was Diamondback Racing. Brad had already done the bikes, but they didn't really have a platform to hang it on. And we were hanging around in the office, you know, when I first started there and talking about it. And, um, you know, we, I didn't, I didn't know much about mountain bike. I didn't know anything about motocross. I, I'm like I said, I'm an old school road biker. So I don't roadie. know I'm a roadie. I'm a retro grouch. <laughs> and, um, um, you know, uh, we were talking about it and I happened to look at a motocross or, or motorcycle racing magazine because a lot of these mountain bike guys had crossed over to beat to, 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 to a motocross and stuff. And I, and I saw something Yamaha team racing. I don't remember exactly, but I said, well, what about diamondback racing? And the light bulb went on, you know, the 25 watt light bulb went on over their heads and they liked that. And then we had the graphics people uh, work up um, some decals and they looked a lot like, and then they mocked them up and they put them on. They had some nice mm-hmm. bikes. They had a Sandvik titanium uh, cross country bike. And they had that, right. uh, they had that full response. It was called, it was a uh, downhill bike from uh, v- made at uh, by Verlicki. Uh, with um, what's the Italian suspension brand called? The Fork. Marzocchi. Marzocchi Forks, and that was. Marzocchi and then Forks. Cully had won. Cully had won the world championships in 1992 on a iron right. horse, and so the guys hired him to ride as the world champion on Diamondback. I mean, the iron horse had no money. They were like had less than zero, and. Diamondback had some money, although they didn't like to spend it. So they hired Cully. And then Cully was, you know, Cully was a big deal because Dave Cullinan was a real character. He's kind of like the Elvis Presley of cycling. Uh, he had a, right. a big personality and he was a hell of a bike rider. And so, you know, he he brought that to the whole mix. And then the other two who are on that team, who are also great ambassadors, was David Weens and his um, girlfriend, now wife for many years, Susan DiMattei. And David is now running Norba. And Susan, and they live in Gunnison, Colorado. Susan is retired. She's a from cycling. She still rides. She's a, I think she's still working as a nurse. And they were oh, yes. wonderful. And Dave was a good, yes. he was a good cross country rider. He's a big guy. You know, he was really at, he was really at, um, at, um, um, ease, you know, at 10,000 feet in the Rockies. So you probably remember that day and I wasn't there, but you remember that day in Berlin when he lost in the final round of the Grundig World Cup when they had that yes. the race on the old rubble mound. I forget what it's called. Right. So, you know, it was super exciting to be involved with that. It wasn't just selling bikes. You were selling a brand and that brand had a lot of potential and the management in Hong Kong, um, saw that the Americans not so much. They were sort of put upon. They were like, "Yeah, you can buy a bike, the international guys, whatever. We don't really care." Right. So it was my job to, you know, extract and align those resources for the international business, and that was interesting. But you know, I had had plenty of bureaucratic infighting experience in ad agencies, so it was. Um, it was something that, you know, just came with the territory. And like you said, you you, you traveled a lot, right? We we met at many different places throughout Europe yeah. and you were always meeting with uh, your diamond back crew, the distributors, yeah, um, the media. And uh, so it sounds pretty much like you were an interpreter, right, of the European needs and cultures. Yeah, the US team, that, right? yes, indeed. You know, I mean, those are my customers and, you know, I... Um, I always believe that you have to be completely laser focused on what the customer wants and listen to them. And, you know, what we tried to do is listen to them and have meetings. They had never had distributor meetings before. And the important thing was to listen. And if you heard, let's say, a common thread of three different things that the customers wanted or needed to make their business better, then you at least had a clear idea of what your key initiatives would be and what you could put your funding behind and, you know, your, your effort behind to achieve. And if you did that, your customers were probably happy. And if you had the right product, 
uh, and and all, and they would usually buy more bikes, and so you would have achieved your objective. So you coming from a, a very strong agency background, right? I mean, working at Saatchi and Saatchi or Young and Rubicon. Yeah, it sounds impressive. <laughs> yeah, you, you came with with uh, a lot of uh, process, right? How to do things. Well, um, you know, I I spent ten years in advertising and marketing jobs. I spent a few years in like I wanted to be in the music business, so I worked for a couple of record store chains, and then I also worked for a, a retail big retail department store chain in the Northern California. And there was some process there, but yes, when you go and work on packaged goods brands like Procter and Gamble, Clorox, which is actually an offshoot of Procter and Gamble, you definitely learn process. You learn structure. You learn the fundamental building blocks of packaged goods, advertising, you know, how do you sell bleach? You know what I mean? I mean, who the hell cares about bleeds? But it's there are processes and procedures in place for the marketing of those products. And those are easily applied to any product. And so, yeah, I mean, I felt like I... Could you apply those to, to, to the cycling world? Yeah, absolutely. I felt like I came into the industry with a running start because, you know, budgeting... And then a calendar. In fact, it wasn't until I got to specialized um, many you know, years after Diamondback, but when we get to specialized, that I saw a what we call a drive calendar. So there was a calendar, annual calendar of marketing right. initiatives, because specialized was a very well organized marketing machine then, just as it is today. But right. a lot of the bicycle industry, they didn't really have a budget. Or like at, at Diamondback in the U.S., they had a budget, but it was not well defined, and they had a sort of a calendar that we're doing the trade shows. We got to get the guys to the races and this and that, but they didn't have a, a clear marketing plan. So all those things were, you know, not easy, but they were pretty much just what I had been trained to do. Because right. when you work on so bringing the- structure and 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 process into yeah. the cycling world. Yeah, it's definitely you get one training. thing. You actually get that, that separates like some went. brands from others, right? Yeah, like I went to Procter and Gamble. I worked on P and G, and I was in the media department at that time. And I had to have a training, you know, uh, program as the way that P and G wanted you to evaluate media. So they had certain parameters, et cetera. You didn't just say, "I like that magazine. I'm going to buy it," and it has good cost per thousand you didn't just do that there was a lot more you know sophisticated so it you know it was a it was a great structure and the bicycle industry which i love but as i said before it's kind of a poor stepchild of the sporting goods industry and there was there wasn't then and still isn't to this day a lot of structure and planning uh and discipline in how the marketing of these companies are run right But isn't that what, what, what that a lot mean? of people attract to, to, to come and work in the bike industry, that it's not so super tight like at a Procter Gamble? Well, I think, no, I mean, I th but I think the reason, I mean, I was attracted to the bike industry and it's very, you know, it's because it's exciting industry. It's fun. It's different. I, was, I remember sitting on a plane one time on an international flight next to a guy and he and I got to chatting and he was a pretty successful um, software uh, marketing guy from the California. I think it was a flight from California back to Germany. Um, and this is, this had to be in the early audies. And I told him what I did, uh, I was an independent marketing consultant in the bike industry. And I working on this and that, Oh my God, the guy was like jumping out of his skin. He goes, Oh, I'd love to do that. Really interesting. And, so, and this guy's probably making 10 times what I was making, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But right. he was selling something that was boring, computer, something, software, or something, I don't know, whatever. And, you know, and that's why I say about the bike industry, it's low, it's low tech. 
It's a bicycle. It's the greatest, you know, invention of the Victorian age. Look, it's 120 years old and still going more than strong, right? right? And so, you know, you got to love that. And so the bicycle industry attracts a certain, you know, bicycle enthusiasts as well. Uh, That's usually uh, one of the key components there. So I'm not trying to put anybody down. I'm just saying that that's kind of the way it is. And if you can use... Um, some of the marketing um, expertise, if I could use, I could use that marketing expertise that I gained outside the industry, so be it. Great. So speaking about uh, cycling and culture and just the success we spoke about uh, that uh, Corona brought Mm. to, to cycling, again, finding this freedom, there's also another pusher these days, which is electric bikes. What's your view as a cons- as a roadie Italian roadie on e road bikes? Well, coming I'm an more American more. roadie, and so I'm old. I'm, okay. I'm, I'm old school personally, and then and then professionally. So I'll say personally, I'm waiting to my seventieth birthday, which is still a ways down the line, to consider buying an e bike because I like to go out and push the pedals and suffer. And I do more and more, but I like that. I think that's great. However, on a on a marketing side, e-bikes are extremely interesting and really exciting because e-bikes, I, you know, I was thinking about this yesterday. I was talking to one of my consulting clients who's a, <coughs> a big German direct-to-consumer company, and that will remain kind of, you know, there, what it is. And they, they're looking at, uh, you know, e-bikes over the horizon. E-bikes are very exciting. But how do you market them? You don't market them in a conventional manner. So it's really exciting. It's more of a consumer or lifestyle product than a bicycle because a bicycle, you know, is marketed more uh, to a tribe, you know, the, the unique user in each market segment that exists on a vertical base. Right. Like, Enduro riders, downhill, downhill riders, um, uh, lifestyle, you know, fitness rider. Whereas an e-bike has a far broader horizontal appeal of, on a mobility basis. And so it's interesting and it's really, it's, it's been fan. I'm a, I'm a huge supporter of e-bikes. I think it's a huge bonus for the industry to have these. Have you tried one? Yeah, I've tried them. I mean, they're cool, but you know, it's like crack, you know, once you start, geez, you can't go back because it's too whack. Right. So I yes. don't want to ride an e-bike until I'm, you know, until I'm slower than I am now. I think it's great. You know, I think it's a great thing. I think the e-bike technology is going to continue to improve. They're going to get lighter. One of the things I don't like is the aesthetic um, especially for road bikes, the mountain bikes are okay being kind of chunky and like that. I mean, I do like some of the, the new, um, bikes like the, the Canyon grail is, is a, is a gravel grail on is a gravel bike. That's pretty cool looking, but I'm waiting for them to have, you know, uh, look almost like a regular road bike and be lighter. And then I'll be, well, okay, you know, then I better get one. <laughs> but I don't like the aesthetics that much. And uh, and all. and also the battery still needs some work. So I think that they're, over the next five to seven years, they're just going to get better and better because so many people are investing in them. I mean, one of the key brands that's evolved is American brand. It's got a fantastic price value story called rad power now their bikes aren't that great to look at but they've got a lot of performance for the da for the money you spend right and and also i think that's one market segment that's continuing to evolve very fast that's bikes under about three thousand euros but then you have the three thousand to six thousand you know higher end market and you know, I see regularly see here in Italy, I see a, during the summer months, because a lot of the e-bike people are fair weather riders. I see a couple coming down off of Monte Grappa and I'm on the little road that I take that goes up to the there where the trails start. 
and this couple is coming down and they're both on, you know, $6,000 specialized mountain bikes. And they're coming off uh, a morning of riding uh, on the mountain and they're smiling. They have had a good time because the e-bike enhances their experience. And so if you can get that um, into the, you know, mix um, for marketing, that's fantastic. That's going to bring bring a lot of even more new people into the sport of cycling. And that's really the most important thing. So a couple of your clients uh, you used to work for um, were Conago and Pinarello, yeah. right? Yeah. So when, when was that? When, when did you That work was for them? back in the, in the, let's say, early oddies. Uh, I was working for Cycling News as the European editor. And at the same time, I was basically doing, let's say, you could say it was ad sales, but it wasn't really sale of advertising space because we were teaching bike companies how to use the internet as part of their communication program because none of them were doing internet advertising, banner advertising, et right. cetera, et cetera. So for both of those companies, I worked on their first website and their some of their content, et cetera. I wasn't involved with like all of their advertising, but I was an internet specialist. So I worked with Uh, Colnago had a guy who had a graphic agency and he sort of knew how to do it. And then we figured out how to do a website for Colnago. So I worked on that. I actually did some translation projects for Mr. Colnago and translated his biography so, into English. So how crazy was that for you to take uh, a the, the most renowned road cycling brand into the World Wide Web? Uh, it was it was pretty crazy, and Colnago is an extremely conservative company with very specific ideas about their brand identity. So it was less dynamic than it could have been. But as long as the customer was happy, it worked out. And you know, to get to know Ernesto Colnago was really an honor. And I still you know know him, and his birthday's coming up pretty soon. And I think Great. it's going to be. 80, 88 or 89. And he's just a, he's like a, just a pure genius. He's just really an interesting character. So that was pretty cool. And then with, with Pinarello, I worked very closely with um, Fausto's younger brother, Andrea Pinarello, who passed away about maybe 10 years ago. He was a quite a good cyclist. He did a lot of the, Uh, Grand Fondo's here and this and that. And he, they had a, uh, they have, a, I think they still have it, but not now maybe it's inactive. They had a tour, uh, a tour company. They would take people to Sharm El Sheikh and stuff like that. And he was a very avid rider. And one day after a Grand Fondo near his, near his home, um, they, um, he died of a heart, heart attack. Basically he had a, heart um, defect that no one knew about. So I worked with him and he's a really nice guy. And we did together with um, Manuel Botazzo, who is still their graphic artist and their ad, their ad agency guy. Um, we, uh, we worked together to do the first Pinarello website or actually, no, they had a website, but it was pathetic. So we like made it rock and it was a good experience because they were much more dynamic and, and, and open to um, um, doing different things. So, yeah, that was cool. And I get to know those guys and um, still know Fausto pretty well and his team today. And, you know, Pinarello is a much different company now than they were in those days. In those days, they were pretty small potatoes. Um, now they're, you know, pretty big deal after having been bought out and, Uh, have a fair amount of investment in the company. So, Tim, since you're the, also like a, a Wikipedia on, on road cycling history, was was that the first Tour de France win for Cornago last year? Yes, it was. That oh, was crazy, a huge huh? deal. That, you know, he's, he's won everything upon everything upon everything except the Tour de France. The closest he got was back in 2007 when Michael Rasmussen had the yellow jersey 
and he got 86th from the tour with only a few stages left. He had won that great win on the Obisk ahead of Contador. And then <laughs> the this other shoe dropped at, on rest day. And that was it. Chicken got sent home and Colnago's Tour de France dreams ended in, you know, <laughs> ashes. So, yeah, it was a huge deal for him. And he was I know he was very happy. I haven't seen them in a long time. I mean, usually when I would go to Milano or go out, you know, go over that way, you know, about two hours from my house, I would stop in and see Mr. Colnago, especially at lunchtime is a good time to go there because he, you know, he works all the time and he lives across the street from his, from his headquarters. So he'll be there in the office and he'll, you know, he'll be there and you go and see him and he'll have a coffee and, um, couple of biscotti and he loves to gossip. He knows he's oh totally interested in racing. He has more passion for racing than like anybody I've ever met. And so, gosh, I remember watching the, the, a race with him a long time ago. Uh, we were watching the tour, I guess, or maybe no, the Giro in the office and listening to his comments. And it's like, wow, you know, he knew like, he knew everything about every rider and then some of the, he was saying some shit about some of the riders. And I was like, Oh wow. I never thought of him like that. You know? So yeah. I can uh, imagine you and Mr. Conago sitting there. Yeah. And I'm, I'm lucky. I speak fluent Italian. I speak good, pretty good Italian. And so I can, this has been one of my success points. This is why I got the job really at diamond back is that I was in those days I was, pretty fluent in French. And so I, the company was based in France, so I could, you know, do that. And I, and I have a, a knack for languages. So I, you know, it's important to, if you're going to work in international business to understand and, you know, learn languages. This is one of the things I've observed about a lot of the companies, American companies who kind of ruled the roost in international bike business from. So speaking of language, what is, I mean, French is, is, uh, Once you speak it, it's a nice language. But what was your motivation back then in the U.S. to to learn French? Oh, I had learned French earlier. But what I what I wanted to finish my thought was saying that a lot of these American guys would go out there and they wouldn't speak any foreign language. They wouldn't have any idea of the company's country's culture or how things worked. And so it would be like, yeah, buy your bike. And it was so American, you know, the ugly American, very typical. Um. And, and, you know, I always try to be sensitive to the culture of the individual um, country and the people and et cetera. And, you know, and, and, and it actually has put it's put me in good stead over the years. Um, and so I, le I learned French when I was, a, you know, kid in grammar school and I had a good French teacher and I'm good at languages. I have good memory and I'm not afraid to make mistakes. So I learned French and then. When I was a uh, you know kid, like in my late teens, early twenties, I was you know I was a bike racer, and I raced in France for part of two summers. And, ah, here we go. And I studied in French in university because I liked it. And there was also in French classes there was usually like all girls and like me and a okay, lot. Okay, here we go. Now we're you know <laughs> so bike racing and girls. Well, yeah. Okay, that was pretty much my interest back in those days, and um, and also and I and I learned French, and then they wanted someone who could speak foreign languages, and I also spoke a little bit of other languages and whatever, and so that was you know that was an important factor and and all, and to understand like to be able to read the bike magazines, I guess to my to this day, Dirk, my biggest regret, my biggest failing, I would say in that regard is that I never really learned German and you know, German is not easy to learn, but I could have, if I had studied it and been diligent, but I'm too lazy and, um, and also, but anyway, but luckily a lot of Germans like yourself speak excellent, perfect English. And so Thank I never you. really had to. Yeah. But again, it's, it's really great. You're sharing the story and I have, I have two kids who are struggling with French in, in high school. Mm-hmm. And uh, they can't wait to to get rid of it, and and it's it's simply the lack of of motivation, which of course with Corona is even harder. No traveling yeah. and no seeing friends. 
Yeah. Um, I mean, you can't go uh, on holiday in France for a couple of weeks because if you did, the kids would be there and they'd start speaking it around and then there would be in a total immersion situation. And when you go total immersion, that's when it starts to click after a couple of right. weeks, you know? I mean, one way I learned Italian was watching Italian television and just listening to it in the background and it sinks in, you know? Yes. So. And there's, of course, just a, I know something all all movies are translated, so we only have uh, German TV, whether it's a French and Italian or an, yeah. an English movie. So, but it's it's a really great story because I've went through the same uh, excitement of learning languages with the motivation, and that's what has got us where we are today. So, you know, you you also worked for you said for Specialized and for many other brands, and mm -hmm. uh, so if you were to meet uh, on on one of your future trips on the plane, another. Um, IT marketing guy, and he would ask you, like, what, what's what's the difference between marketing of uh, a U.S. brand and Italian brand today? What what would you? Well, I mean, tell I him? think that you're looking to. It all goes back to the culture, as you mentioned at the very beginning of the podcast, Dirk. It's really looking at the cultural icons that are related to each, you know brand and that being an italian brand they have a certain flair one of the things about italy is that italians are extremely uh visually oriented their aesthetics italy is a beautiful country just to go and look around in italy the way the buildings look and the the, the countryside where i live you know i see the mountains when i'm riding and And so the Italians are driven by that. And so well, the bicycle has to have a certain flair. It has to have a certain line. You know, one of the things about right. the bicycle industry is that we're, it's not often discussed, but the bicycle has a certain visual impact. It's completely unique. And so the Italian bikes, you know, a lot of times have a, 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 a different color story. Um, they are they look more festive and so italy and italy also is related to um speed because you have the great legacy italian car brands like ferrari and lamborghini and so those guys you know italian bike has to look fast um so so that you know you want sure. to capture those cultural elements in it you know um When I worked for Northwave, for example, that was a completely different uh, approach because we tried to do something that was Italian but still had its own unique mountain bike flair. We did uh, a packaging reboot for Northwave, and they had like ugly-looking boxes. And a shoebox is fairly important because in, in bicycle shops, a lot of times the bicycle shoes are 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 on the shelves in the box right. and so in italian pasta the 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 regular pasta is usually for barilla the, the leading brand it's in a blue um box and for um whole wheat pasta it's in a green box so we took the road bike shoes and put them in a blue box and, and made the packaging kind of look like a, a spaghetti box uh in terms of the graphic and for the mountain bike shoe we use green so that was a way that we used the italian cultural identification with spaghetti because that's you know the italians right <laughs> that's their what everybody knows and dna You know, DNA. and and um, and and we use that as a way to you know distinguish the product. Uh, American Great. brand, you know, is more. I remember those. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. Um, and they sold a lot. It was very effective. And um, in in you know, in contrast, an American brand, um, it really is more unique to the actual brand itself. You know, Mike Sinyard is a tremendous acolyte for branding. So every product out of Specialized is instantly identifiable as a Specialized product because it has the 
S. It's branded, you know, with that. And so you look at that. Whereas a Trek, Trek is now, you know, you look at a Trek bike and only recently they put a huge Trek on their protein bikes, you know, pro tour bikes, a huge Trek. It's like kind of like, oh, that's a Trek, I guess. huh? You know, whereas in the days of Lance Armstrong winning the Tour de France, it wasn't, the branding wasn't as strong. And you remember that Trek has changed their head tube logo probably I don't know, so many times because they don't have that branding vision that comes from, you know, a guy like Mike Sinyard, who is just, you know, so uh, strong about. It. And so I think the American brand identity is more unique to the product itself. Right. Um, and I think that, for example, Servalo, which that's a Canadian product. And so it's closer to, in my opinion, a European style brand marketing because it's more understated um, than an American brand, what might be a little bit more uh, outgoing and uh, declarative in terms of, you know, here, here I am, right? Louder. Yeah, louder. That's the word I'm thinking of. Right. Wow. Amazing stories, uh, Tim. Thank you for, for sharing. Um, and even so, I, I know you uh, for over 27 years. I even learned. Uh, a couple of new things uh, today, which uh, is great. And this what, what, uh, is the evidence that, you know, talking to each other and sharing these stories, you you always can learn. Yeah, well, I'm glad you hey, liked uh, my bullshit, so to speak. <laughs> well, you know, I love the bike industry, and it's always great to share insights with someone like yourself, who I've known for many years, and I know that you under understand that. And, you know, I think that it's a, a great idea of yours to do this podcast, to to you know, I'm very flattered that you would even, you know, um, include me. And I think that it's a type of thing where, um, it's really, um, something that's, that's going to be, uh, well received in the industry for, uh, brand, um, the stories that are behind the brands and branding to come out. Yeah. And, and, uh, one thing that even came up today that honestly I had, uh, not on my radar yet was, you know, the difference between working with and without internet, right? Producing advertising for 27 distributors, different languages, um, with, uh, old style graphics versus today where everything is digital. So there are still, uh, an amazing amount of stories, uh, some were hidden. The, the last question I'm, I'm curious to ask you is like on this long journey trip that you've been taking already through the, the second industry. You met many, many people, like you mentioned, um, and Esther Colnago and Mike Senior. But if you look back, who of those uh, inspired you uh, and your work the most or left wow, that's a mark? Question. Um, I would say not just one person, not necessarily inspired me, but, you know, molded me and helped me. Right. Be, you know, one guy has to be Mike Sinyard because Mike Sinyard is Mike Sinyard. And he right. is a guy who, with all respect, has built a billion-dollar company at a, from a bicycle trailer. I met – well, I didn't really meet him, but I remember Mike Sinyard in the mid-'70s when he used to ride around the South Bay of, um, of San Francisco area, Palo Alto San Jose with a bike and he had a, a, a bugger trailer filled with bike chains and this and that. And he would go to the wheelsmith, uh, wasn't even a store. Actually, it was a, it was a garage in the back of Sierra designs, Sierra designs, which became the North face. Uh, and they would right. do bike repairs and wheel building in there. And he used to go there and sell stuff. And I remember going there to pick up a pair of wheels and he was there selling them all Italian stuff. And I think i didn't buy from him, but I bought from a fresh, uh, um, fresh, fresh uh, delivery of Regina Oro chains. <laughs> but it was amazing that Mike Sinyard has done what he's done. And I learned a lot at Specialized, especially because he had hired a guy named Eric Eidsmo to come in from the outside, who had been a very experienced marketing executive. And Eric Eidsmo went in and cleaned up. He, before in the late 80s specialized was kind of like the marketing department there was kind of like the lunatics running the asylum and they were just like totally all over the map and mike hired this guy 
And Mike is always, you know, to come in and clean it up and straighten it up and structure it. And he, indeed he did. And that's where the basis of, of, of specialized success is today is the structure uh, and discipline that Eric Eidsmo put into their marketing department. And so, you know, you'll get that. Mike Sinyard has been a huge influence on me. Another guy I worked with at Reynolds Wheels, uh, who is like a mad genius, is named Paul Liu. And Paul is an engineer, former Navy guy. He's he's brilliant, really brilliant. You know, he's one of these guys. I mean, he's made a lot of money. He's had because he founded a company to make drones that he designed and sold it on. You know, I mean, he loves cycling. And um, Paul Liu was a huge inspiration for me because we worked on Reynolds wheels, and it was right. pretty, pretty cool to do that. We put. Reynolds wheels on the AG2R team and won some sort of France stages and had a whole big race-based marketing program. And also he was a big inspiration. Um, but above all, Dirk, the influence or the inspiration for me to be in the industry for 30 years is just, and it's such a cliche, but it's, it's true. Okay. It's just the passion that we all share, you know, for riding bikes. That's really fantastic. You, this is like the guy in the plane I was talking to. There's no shared passion for selling software, but there is for riding bikes. So we're all in this and we're competitors and this and that, but you know what? We all love to ride our bikes and that's probably how we found our way here. And that's that's a continuing inspiration for me that I'm fortunate enough to work in an industry where I can go out and ride my bike every day and justify it because I'm doing parts part of my job, <laughs> but it's true. <laughs> and that's super right. cool. You don't find that very much. And I, I know that because I, you know, looked around, you don't find yes. that very much. And so that is what I, you know, we kind of leave it with today is, you know, it's just, it's just really fantastic to have that experience and, um, yeah, the freedom. Yeah, the freedom and the fun and, you know, just to know that it's something a little bit special and that everybody isn't doing. Yeah, everyone drives cars. People like cars and this and that. But at the end, it's more just transportation. Riding a bike is something special. And that's great if you can figure out how to do that yourself, but also how to maybe potentially inspire and motivate other people to do that um, through communication, you know. Yes. So speaking about riding your bike, you said uh, at the beginning that uh, every day at lunchtime you go for a ride. What what bike do you pick today oh, to go on a ride? I have, uh, now, currently, I have four road bikes, plus I have two, like, old retro steel bikes. I never ride them. I just look at them. Um, so it depends. Um, one of the, what so are the I, steel bikes? I've, uh, I have a, um, I have a Dutch bike that's called a re R I H, which is like, a it's a, it's, it's a great Dutch brand of racing bike. And, um, I have that from, it's a 1979 bike that I bought from a bike shop in San Francisco, long gone, a little roadie bike shop called the bike nook. <laughs> and um, it was a cool little bike shop with Len Luke branded. And he had like a group of guys who would ride every day at 8 a.m. from the uh, South Tower of the Golden Gate Bridge. And so I bought that. And I have a, um, I have my Marnotti that I've had since 1986. So I still have that. Wow. And, and then I have three Pinarellos and a Colnago. I always will have a Colnago. Uh, I have a C64 Colnago. And I've updated that with, um, it's, di2 and i've updated that with uh a thm clavicula cranks um and then i have a two pinarello f12s and an f10 which is my gravel bike because i can ride that on dirt dirt like gravel paths you know so which one are you going to ride this today for uh, lunch today i don't know i'll, I'll probably uh, depends on if i'm wet the roads are wet i think i'll ride the colnago today And, you know, I have um, I, what I like to do because when I was a kid, I didn't have any money. When I raced, I was like pretty poor and I, you know, I couldn't afford a lot of equipment. Unlike people who had like a family, I had no one behind me doing it. My family didn't, you know, they didn't really help me out. They didn't care. And stuff was expensive if you were 
broke. So I had, you know, a bike and like maybe two sets of wheels if I was lucky. So now I have like for each bike, three or four sets of wheels. And I have, I don't use disc brakes. I don't believe in them. I, I think it's a, a gimmick. It's great for the industry, whatever. But me, no, I'm like, Chris, I'm like Chris Froome. Did you read Chris Froome's? I was going to say, yeah. yeah. You and Chris Froome hey, have something like that. On, Chris. I sent that to a friend <laughs> of mine, John Eustace, who was a former U.S. professional champion. And he, he was asking me last year, um, he wanted to buy a Pinarello. And he said, what well, should I get, disc brakes or rim brakes? I'm like, yeah, well, you don't live where there's long mountain descent, so get rim brakes. And so he was happy with that. So, um, you know, basically, I'll, I, I, you know, I like to put on different wheels. So I put on heavy wheels. I still ride some tubulars occasionally, although less and less. Oh. And then in the summer, usually after Easter, I'd switch to carbon wheels. I don't ride a carbon wheel all year round because when I, when I was a kid coming up the training, you had to ride heavy wheels in the winter. And then you would ride the right light wheels in the race on Sunday. Yeah. yeah. That's the way it is. It's a training routine. I'm old school. And I am, I am a pretty old school. Although I don't use a hairnet helmet, uh, except if I ride the Eroica. And I don't use wool clothes anymore. I have, you know, I like modern stuff, but I have my own limited scope. So I'll probably, probably ride the Colnago today. Tim, thank you so much. This was an exciting journey uh, you took us through and myself listening to this. Um, thank you so much. And uh, yeah, have a great lunch ride. I tried not ride to safe. And uh, yeah, I hope to talk to you soon or see you soon somewhere on the bike. So someday, some way, I'll be up in your neck of the woods. Maybe at your bike. See you. Bye-bye. Cheers. Mm -hmm.